This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good early evening and late afternoon, dear listeners. This is Maud, your hostess on Teacher Talk Radio. Today is the 1st of October, and we're going to talk about dealing with children with SEN in education with a case study. Welcome! This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out, with Teachers Talk Radio. So this is Teachers Talk Radio and you're listening to the Sunday Twilight Show with Maud. It is four past five on Sunday, the 1st of October, 2023. You can join me live using the chat function. We can discuss today's topic, which is a case study, how to deal with children with special educational needs. So good late afternoon and early evening, fellow educators and dear listeners. Uh, This is my 49th radio show as your hostess, and I'm delighted to share this experience in your lovely company. But first, I have to introduce myself to any potential new listener. I am Maud, a French citizen of French and West African ancestry. I have been living in the United Kingdom since 2008. And I'm a professional educator working in a secondary state school in North London, where I teach languages, Spanish and French, as well as PSHCE, personal social health and civic education. And I also have experience as a nursery and primary school teacher in the charity sector. You can follow me on X slash Twitter at profprofmfl, All views are my own. So today I want to focus on a topic that is relevant to many, many parents and many educators, and also in my personal and professional daily working life. I want to talk about um, a case study, but it is in order to understand how we can support children with special educational needs because it is becoming more and more prevalent in numbers and statistics in the, the student cohort, so we need to be better equipped. This is mostly relevant to uh, teachers and educators, preferably also lawmakers and legislators who work in the field of education, parents and their children, people interested in uh, neurodivergence, special educational needs, and also anything relating to being different in the community. And finally, the curious and well-informed. So first, I'm not going to focus so much on a definition of uh, neurodivergence, because I did it in a previous podcast, but I want to talk about what it, what it, implies when you have children with a special educational need. And I want to use a case, a personal case I had, obviously confidentially. And first I need to describe in what context I was operating at that time, last year in the spring term. So I want to talk about the FLAM network. FLAM is French as a mother tongue teaching, which means that it is for a very small part of the community. It is for people who have a very strong connection to a French speaking country, could be Canada, Belgium, France, or any other country um, where French is spoken. So most of West Africa, North Africa, and some also former colonies in Asia, such as Vietnam, and Pondicherry in India, for instance. And this community is living worldwide. And in the UK, there's lots of people who are speaking French at home, or they have a particular affinity to French culture, and they want their children to be able to 
speak, write, and read French. So these people that we would call as a short native speaker, even though, I mean, we're talking about people with very different levels of immersion possibility and uh, fluency. So these people might sign up their children for Saturday morning French school or a weekday after school clubs where we teach French to these children. So it is very different from the way we would teach children who are British or um, who are not exposed to French at home. So it has nothing to do with the teaching your child might be experiencing in a secondary state school when they are studying either French, Spanish, German or other languages. So French as a mother tongue is usually taught by people who are not professional educators because it's small charities, small uh, clubs created by mothers. Sometimes it can be also a business or a charity, depends on the status, but most of them are very de dedicated parents who really don't want their children to uh, not understand French when they go to France or when they spend time with other French speakers, uh, whether it's their families back home or um, cousins or other people they know. So we teach them French. Obviously, they should be exposed to French at home. So we are not giving them the vocabulary that you would expect a year seven British students to learn. We expect them to have quite a good understanding of most ordinary vocabulary. Um, but we are giving them what they would receive if they were immersed in France more often. So we give them nursery songs, we give them classic storybooks, we also start teaching them about uh, French spelling and French pronunciation at a very early age. So we start from three years old usually, and we can also offer play groups as well. So it is in that context that my case study will be. So picture yourself on a Saturday morning, you have one professional, uh, in that case, myself. So one professional native speaker who is teaching French and the children are age three to five years old. They come from very diverse backgrounds. There are some who, who are speaking French at home all the time because both parents are French. Um, there's somewhere only dad is speaking French and dad might be uh, working long hours. So French is maybe spoken to them for let's say a couple, half an hour a day. Um, but then when the dad speaks in English to the mother or in any other language, French is obviously a side uh, language. And then you have some families where French is barely spoken because it's a different language that's spoken in the home. So the children might be going to nursery and speaking English there, but at home they're speaking Turkish or they're speaking Arabic or Greek. So you have all these little children coming and they spend two hours with uh, myself, French uh, teacher, and they are in total immersion. English is banished. I'm not never speaking a word of English when I'm with them. If they do, I just repeat what they said to me in French and I'm hoping they're gonna naturally repeat it or sometimes I encourage them to repeat the correct uh, pronunciation and sentences. Uh, of course, we do mostly games because they are three to five. We have a, a library system so they can borrow French magazines. They have playtime with Legos and other um, plastic educational toys. We have um, singing, dancing, playing games. We have a snack time outside and then we have 25 minutes where we sit down and do some um, pen gripping or pen writing or proper writing depending on the age. So this is the um, structure and the context of my case study today. Now, um, we have a group of students who are used to school because they have either been to nursery or they have started their reception year age four in the English system for most of them. So all of them know how to um, put their hands up very often. Um, they also know to stand together 
in line if they need to leave the premises. They know some basic instructions. They are usually all potty trained and they are uh, used to taking turns because they have been socialized in groups before. So in that case study, I got a new student mid through the year, so beginning of spring term. And this uh, boy was very bright and very dynamic. He had a very rich vocabulary. Um, our, the, the, the family told me that he was, um, he was really interested in animals. And it's true, he was constantly talking to me about very specific types of fish because he went fishing with his father. So he was really um, knowledgeable about fresh river fish. And um, I was um, welcoming him in the classroom and he seemed to struggle from the get-go with sitting down in a circle on the carpet when we did songs. So that was the first experiences over the first Saturdays. And then slowly and slowly he started being very distracted, uh, couldn't stay still for more than two to three minutes. He started being disruptive, um, rolling in the middle of the circle, interrupting, singing, um, sometimes in English, sometimes in French, repeating words at random times, interrupting others. So being quite distracting. Um, the method usually when they're that little is we have a young TA who is not trained. She's a volunteer. She's age 16. So she would just um, take him by the hand, go in the corridor, go for a walk, just ask him a few questions about what he did in the week and then bring it back to the circle. So we did that a few times. Um, it didn't seem to improve the situation. Um, as the weeks went by, he started developing um, disruptive behaviors that had an impact on other students. For instance, if we were asking one student to count from one to 10 in French, counting animals or counting labels or something, um, the child would start, un, deux, trois, and that particular, that particular child would interrupt and shout, um, not swear words, because that would be a bit, but he would start shouting in French the word caca, which means poo. So that would be obviously um, triggering in the sense that all the others would be learning that word and not every parent was happy for them to shout this in the lesson. So it would be distracting. And I'm not sure why he was doing it, because he didn't seem to relish the attention he got from the other students. He knew it was distracting. He chose the perfect moment to really be distracting, but I don't think he really benefited from the attention he got from the others. Um, he started also sometimes pushing others because he was moving so much and really being really difficult to deal with on that carpet when we were doing songs. So, after a few weeks, I decided to ask my um, pedagogy uh, head. We have a head of administration and a head of pedagogy in one of these FLAM network schools. And I asked her for advice. And she told me to have a chat with the parents and ask what was going on and see if we could put something in place. So I did ask the father in that case because he was the one who brought the children i assume he was the only french speaker and the father told me that his son had a diagnosis and at school at english school he didn't really seem to have behavior problems because he had a teaching assistant and I, I asked, how does the teaching assistant help when he can't sit down and when he's being distracting? And he said that there would be two classrooms and in between the classroom, there would be a middle room and the TA would take um, the little boy to the middle room to support him and calm him down and reset him before bringing him back to the classroom. Now, obviously in my setting we do not have extra rooms we have a ta but as i said she's 16 and she's not really always trained to deal with children who have special educational needs so i 
with the advice from my head of pedagogy, asked the father to remain in the classroom with us and support his child. So I could see that there was some reluctance uh, from the father. He didn't he didn't really want to stay in a classroom. He objected that he had a younger child with him, a little sister, and that it would be difficult logistically. Now, I offered for the little sister to attend the classroom with us, to attend the class with us, um, because she was a bit younger, but she seemed really keen and she was really lovely. And she, she just came with her dad the following Saturday, sat down and did the singing with us. And so she was beautifully included in the lesson. And um, I was hoping that the father would be able to support his child the way a trained teaching assistant would in a normal English setting in a weekday school. Now, I noticed that the father was um, not getting involved. He was sitting on a chair away from the group, whereas most parents usually when they attend the lessons, the class, the classes with us, they, they choose to sit down with us, they choose to engage and sing the songs and, and they, they usually hold their child and make their child repeat when it's the first lesson and they're a little bit intimidated. There was none of that with this father and I felt like he was not in the moment with us. And he seemed like he wanted to check his phone and he was looking up and he was not looking at his child. So his child had the same usual behavior. So he was rolling over in the carpet, on the floor, um, bursting out with words that were not related to what we were saying, etc. being distracting again. So um, I went home and reflected, how can I um, get the father's help because I have 15 other students. I can't let one um, one boy's behavior affect the whole um, experience for everybody. So I devised a little document with visuals and I explained to the father everything that he could put in place if he wanted to support his child eff efficiently. So that document was called To Assist, uh, and then the name of the child. And it said, uh, for example, during the circle time when we're on the carpet, can you please sit either behind your child or next to your child and ensure that your child is following instruction. For instance, if your child has to point at his nose or his toes or his fingers, model it for your child and point at your child's toes or fingers if it's required. And I also gave three cases every time with options. So case A, uh, if you start singing something that's not what we're singing, just um, try and sing with him the, the correct lyrics so that he's refocused to that song. If he doesn't sit down, if he becomes agitated and starts moving, take your child by the hand, go for a walk in a corridor and come back. Case three, if he's trying to grab the teacher's resources while the teacher is showing them to the class, uh, make sure you prevent him by saying, not your turn now. Then every part of the class, I had devised these three cases with three options and three pieces of advice. For instance, uh, when we go for playground time, I ask the father, you need to hold your child's hand and you need to make sure he does not run away or run ahead or stays behind and he follows the file of the queue. <coughs> My apologies. And I also said, case one, um, just walk next to him. Case two, hold his hand. Case three, if he refuses to hold his hand, just offer him to choose to hold someone else's hand. Then later on, during playtime outside, I asked the father to make sure that the child was taking turn with the other children in the slide and in um, the playground games or toys. And I wanted, in case one, if the child overtakes another child to make him go back and let the first child in the queue go first. Uh, if the case B, if he pushes a child, make him say sorry in French. 
And case three, if he's um, doing it too often, remove him from the situation, tell him we're not doing this and take him to another part of the playground to do another game. Following the playground time, I said when um, in my document to support the father, I said when he's at the table, make sure he's sat on his chair, that he's holding the pen properly because that's the, that's the um, purpose uh, that's a skill we want to work on. Um, make sure he's not writing on other children's paper, case one. Case two, uh, make sure he doesn't take other children's resources. And case three, if he grabs anything potentially dangerous, such as scissors, do not let him and say no, clearly. And finally, to cover the last part of the session, I gave another case um, where this case A, if he is sitting down to listen to a story, um, if he's too restless, walk around the room or in the corridor with him. And if he is repeating words that have nothing to do with his story, reset his attention by engaging yourself in the story and repeating the words that the teachers say. So it was quite a guided document. At first, I felt that maybe it was too prescriptive and to um i was hoping it wouldn't be seen as patronizing but i did have the feeling that the father was a bit lost in his parenting skills and that he just didn't know how to relate to his child and how to support him so i sent him the document hoping that it would help him and i waited anxiously for the following saturdays in order to see if their um, connection and their um, interaction with the class would improve. Now, sadly, I still noticed that the father was trying his best, but he didn't seem to, to really be able to do it systematically. So for a few times, he did remove his child when his child was trying to uh, distract another child. And he did try to tell his child what to do, but I think he felt disempowered, the father, I mean, and he felt um, overwhelmed and um, he felt like he was not making any progress. So sadly, um, when the end of spring term arrived, the little boy had been missing quite a few Saturdays in a row and he didn't turn up for the summer term and we lost him and his little sister from the playgroup. So what is this case study um, showing? Well, it's showing that it's, it's a failure because we lost two potential students for our Saturday uh, French Saturday morning school. And I completely accept responsibilities for that. However, I'm hoping that it's going to be a good learning curve for myself. So what would I do next time to avoid losing two students from, um, you know, what would be a very beneficial experience for them? So first, I took advice from a neuropsychologist. I received training just earlier today, so it's all fresh in my mind. So a neuropsychologist said the best way to react to such a situation when you're confronted to a child who is um, academically able but has difficulties following the social skills following the social rules in the classroom and uh, difficulties with these social skills that are necessary like listening to others taking turns etc so the neuropsychologist said you need to start with what you can do and what the what that little boy could do, he was really good at talking about animals. He had a very good factual memory, and uh, his French was quite natural. Very good pronunciation and accentuation and intonation. So making him speak and relate what he had done in a week was a good thing. And I did do that um, at break time when we had some time without the others around. Um, now, what I should have done if I had had the advice from the neuropsychologist is I should have asked the father to um, come just for the second half of the lesson. So 
I should have been more flexible with the timing because obviously that little boy couldn't cope with the requirements in the uh, during carpet time. So he couldn't sit still. And when we were singing or dancing, he couldn't follow the instructions. So instead of focusing on what he couldn't do, I should have just said, well, he will join us for playtime outside for the snack time and for the writing time, because then he can draw and it's less challenging for him because if he is obviously he had a special educational need but if this is something he's struggle struggling with the sound levels the the noise around and the movement it was gonna defeat him every time if we try to make him stay in that circle on the carpet so with hindsight I would have asked the father to just come for the second part of the class to bring his child for just 15 minutes one Saturday and then 30 minutes another Saturday and maybe just stay there until the child was uh, calm enough to not distract others uh, because during drawing time sometimes he would draw on other people's books and he would also sometimes take their pens or once he had a scissors and um, he was being a bit rough with the scissors. So just having a reduced time would have been a good answer and might not have um, um, pushed the child away because obviously if the child is difficult to deal with, then maybe the, the father lost um, the will to come regularly every Saturday. So that's what the neuropsychologist said. Then another thing I could have tried to keep them both on side is to be more clear and more prescriptive and more um, explicit in my uh, instructions. Because as I explained, I gave the document I prepared to the father and I hoped he read it. I gave him a printed sheet and I sent him the document as well. But I didn't go through it with him during a meeting. I mean, we had a meeting, but I gave him the document after. Maybe I should have, with hindsight, sat with the father and said, this is what you have to do every time systematically. This is what the teaching assistant would do in the weekday school, in the English school. So this is what you have to do on a Saturday morning. And I know you're not trained professional. I know you're a father. I know there's a lot of emotional aspect to the father-child relationship, and it's sometimes hard to give them instructions the way a professional would do, and it would be easier for a professional. But because we were not a structure that has trained TAs, only a 16-year-old who was helping with French, it was important for me to be extremely clear. And also, with hindsight, maybe the father also had difficulties dealing with uh, implicit communication and a social um, input. So I should have made it really, really, really prescriptive and explicit. So this is with that sort of case study analysis that we can improve as a practitioner, as an educator. And I find it extremely useful. And I wish I had a neuropsychologist on speed dial whenever I face an issue with, in my classroom. So I hope that case study was as helpful as it was for me. Let's listen to the news now to have a little bit of an idea of what's going on. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio.
Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes ADAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen EDAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at edapt.org.uk today. EDAPT. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The BBC covers reports that Labour has dropped plans to end charitable status for private schools. The status exempts some private schools in England and Wales from taxes. The Labour leader, Sakia Starmer, had previously said charitable status for private schools could not be justified. The party said it will still remove other tax breaks if it wins the next general election. There are around 2,500 private schools in England and Wales, and government figures show around half are registered as charities. Having charitable status means the schools cannot operate for profit and are eligible to claim some tax exemptions, including on donations and business rates. Since 2006, private schools have had to demonstrate they are creating public benefit in order to maintain their charitable status. Labour has said it would charge private schools 20% VAT and end business rates relief. It says this could raise an estimated £1.7 billion. A party spokesperson said the money would fund desperately needed teachers and mental health counselling in every secondary school. Last year, the Scottish Government scrapped business rate relief for private schools. The Conservatives have questioned whether tax changes would raise the £1.7 billion as claimed by Labour. The problem of RAC was highlighted again as parents with children at a secondary school in Durham, affected by the potentially unsafe concrete, staged a protest. Parents told schools minister Baroness Barron, who was visiting the school, that there had to be more support for the teachers and pupils and that the school must be rebuilt. The school is using a mix of face-to-face and online teaching after RAC was found shortly before the return to school from the summer break. The multi-academy trust in charge of the school has asked the DfE if it could use centre-assessed grades for GCSE and A-level pupils similar to the way assessment was used during the pandemic. A DfE spokesman said it was working to bring back face-to-face teaching quickly and that the school would be rebuilt. Procurement, design and planning stages would be started before the end of the year. Schools Week reports on MPs' comments that government should create a school absence code specifically for mental health and review the adequacy of health services struggling with soaring waiting lists. The Parliamentary Education Committee has also urged the government to make its daily attendance data collection mandatory as soon as possible. The committee found growing demand for mental health services and special educational needs support, as well as the cost of living pressures and other issues, have compounded problems with attendance. However, Schools Minister Nick Gibbs said changes would add further complications for schools in coding absence, which could damage the accuracy of data. Full details of the committee's recommendations can be found in the article in Schools Week Online. The Guardian covers news that in America, students at more than 50 high schools across the country are proposing a Green New Deal for schools. They are demanding that their districts teach climate justice, create pathways to green jobs and plan for climate disasters. The campaign is seen as a reaction to right-wing efforts to ban or suppress climate education and activism at school. The national effort would see teach-ins, walk-outs and petitions. The New Deal also calls for updated buildings and infrastructure to make schools more climate resilient. Further details can be found on the Guardian website. Finally, 
the Nuffield Trust has said that student loans in England should be written off for certain health staff once they have completed 10 years of NHS service. It says this is needed to stop a dropout crisis among nurses, midwives and other frontline staff. Ministers have rejected the idea, saying support is already in place and that the current student finance system strikes the right balance between the interests of students and taxpayers, as well as highlighting training grants, support for childcare and some expenses. Tuition fees are not charged in Scotland, and in Wales, tuition fees are covered if nurses and other frontline staff work for the NHS for two years. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Right, so thank you, dear listeners, for listening to the news. Um, now we're back to thinking about how to support children with special educational needs. As I said earlier, uh, with hindsight and a direct line to a neuropsychologist, that would be very helpful. In the meantime, there is a few things we need to remind ourselves. Um, First, the neuropsychologist who did our training today was very clear that there is an abundance of diagnoses at the moment and that they are statistically unfounded because according to him, uh, too many children are diagnosed as being autistic or as suffering from uh, cognitive issues when they are not really uh, suffering from this particular cognitive issues. So it might be something else, but he just said it was just too many children were described as being autistic compared to the general population. So that is his take. Obviously he's been a neuropsychologist for 35 years, so he must know what he's talking about. Now, the problem is that sometimes we do see as teachers, children who suffer from very strong difficulties and they do not have a diagnosis. It's not our job to um, diagnose children neurologically. We don't have the tools, we don't have the time, we're not trained for that, but we are trained for uh, diagnosis, diagnosing pedagogy difficulties. So our job is to see who is learning, how, and if they're not learning to the best of their potential, we need to address it. Why is it difficult? What can we do to make it less difficult? What can we put in place? So this is where the remit of the teacher goes. Not doing, not putting a label on the child, not uh, saying to the parents, your child has this or that, but saying your child is finding this difficult or that difficult. Now, um, if we want to go back to the meaning of words, you're all familiar with dyslexia. A few of you might be might be aware of dyspraxia, dyscalculia, dysphasia. What do they mean? Well, it's simple. It's uh, Latin, obviously, so um, we need to go back to our lessons on Latin um, prefix. So the prefix dis means difficulty or symptom with. So facing a difficulty with dyslexia and lexia comes from lexicon and it comes from reading words. So dyslexia is the difficulty in reading. It doesn't mean that your child will have difficulties writing, but it, your child has difficulties with reading the words. Now you have, um, dysorthography which means difficulty with spelling so that one might be coupled with dyslexia but they're not always going hand in hand sometimes they're very separate so dyslexia difficulty with reading dysorthography diffi difficulty with spelling dyspraxia difficulty with motricity and gestures uh, for instance tying your laces uh, holding uh, cutlery and when we say difficulty, it doesn't mean that because your child can't do their laces H6, that they have dyspraxia. So we, we need to be careful with this. We can't just label a child and say, you will be forever having problem with your motricity. This is not what it is about. Some children 
need more time to learn skills and some children just maybe weren't taught this skill. For instance, most Westerners struggle with um, bamboo sticks for eating. If I ask anyone who lives in the UK to start cooking and eating only with um, Chinese uh, sticks, you will struggle because this is not a gesture culturally that you have practiced from very early on. Um, so let's also be aware of cultural differences. If in your culture and your country you don't wear trousers, you might find it difficult at first to put them on and tie them. Um, I am unable to do a tie, for instance, because I did not attend an English school where we had to wear a uniform. So let's not just label a child because they can't do something. Dyspraxia is only um, a diagnosis that a child would have if the child is consistently struggling with in his play with holding um, plastic toys or if he's constantly struggling with his cutlery even though he's been learning how to eat with cutlery for a year two years three years so this is when um, spatial awareness can also uh, come into play for dyspraxia now we have dyscalculia so it's about figures and numbers and digits it can take many, many forms, um, but it's a difficulty with numbers. We can have dysphasia as well, which is um, the difficulty with language, the oral language. So that child might be um, unable to reproduce some sounds, um, having problem with intonation, having a delay in uh, speaking. It, it can take many, many different forms and there's no, no two children who will have the same symptoms for dysphasia. So dyslexia, dyspraxia, dysorthography, dyscalculia and dysphasia are all a difficulty with something. Reading, um, special uh, awareness, motricity, spelling, calculating on numbers and oral speaking. Now, we also have attention disorders and they also are very different. Some children have hyperactivity, some children are very placid. They might both have attention deficits. Um, you also have memory problems, memory disorders, and this is extremely rare and the neuropsychologist who trained me today said he only saw one or two cases and one was a child who had suffered from um, a herpes, the virus of herpes, and the virus went through his uh, brain and literally made holes in his, um, in his brain. So the memory, was affected. This is extremely rare in a neuropsychologist's career. Now, we shouldn't really worry about this. It's, it's a very rare thing. Obviously, with adults, it happens way more because, you know, after 25 years, our brain, 25 years of age, our brain starts losing its memory ability. And um, we all will have memory disorders. <laughs> more or less as we age, some more than others. And obviously in the special educational needs, finally, that we can have, we can have autism, but also precocity, which means um, being um, highly educationally gifted. And that can cause issues if you are not supported enough and if you are getting bored or if you are also very, very gifted academically, but your emotional resilience is of your age. And then there's a big gap between what you can deal with emotionally and what your uh, academic prowess is like. So this is all the special educational needs a teacher can face. Now, in my school, we have had a 17% increase in numbers of children who have special educational needs from last year to this year. That's really a lot. 
and it's not statistically representative of the general population. Apparently, on average, there's 8% there's of the general population who has some um, learning difficulties or learning disorders. If we have a school where we reach 40% of children with special educational needs, I'm starting to worry. Is it because we overdiagnose? Is it because we have a, a community that is more affected than other communities? And the question is why? Or is it because it's, um, it's becoming a business? Let's have a think. Why would we have more children who are diagnosed? Well, first, as I mentioned the word business, and sometimes in my book it's a bit of a dirty word when it's related to education. Why would having a business be um, detrimental and increasing referrals to um, specialists as far as uh, disorders of uh, special educational needs are concerned? Well, it's because if you have... Uh, if you are a psychologist and you can see a patient for 45 minutes and diagnose them with either ADHD, ADD, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, etc., you can be paid a lot of money. So it is in your personal interest, personal financial economic interest, to see a lot of customers and to give them a diagnosis. Now, why do parents and schools want the children to be diagnosed? Well, they do want this because they would potentially receive more funding to support that child. Whether this child really has special educational needs or not, we don't know because we are not in the clinic when the clinical uh, diagnosis is made. What this neuropsychologist told me today is that you cannot be professional and give a diagnosis after seeing a child for 45 minutes. A good, solid clinical diagnosis should take, should take between three to nine hours of working with that child, testing many, many different cognitive skills, looking at memory, cognitive abilities, many, many factors that I'm not able to describe because I'm not a neuropsychologist. But if you get a diagnosis after 45 minutes questionnaire with a psychologist, you have been misdiagnosed. Um, you wouldn't get a diagnosis for cancer without having blood tests and an MRI, etc. by a professional. So it is, it is quite immoral if you get a diagnosis after only 45 minutes. So we need to question the profession that delivers all these diagnoses. Now um, I can picture a lot of parents screaming and saying, my child really has uh, whatever cognitive trouble or um, disorders that has been diagnosed. I know, I agree. I myself have had have a child who is um, diagnosed with a cognitive uh, disorder. Now, obviously, you know your child very well and you know when your child is struggling and when your child is not. So the increase in uh, referrals might just be because school really want to help children. They might not really have dyspraxia or they might not really have dyslexia, but they have something that they need support with. And the problem is when you're part of a system where only with a label and a certificate will you get enough funds to help that child. You should not have to give evidence that a child needs help to give help to that child. As a head teacher, as a head of Senko, as a teacher, you are a trained pedagogue. So if you say, this child is struggling with literacy. It doesn't mean that child has dyslexia or dyspraxia or whatever disorder. It just means this child needs extra help. It might just take three months and then the child will overcome the difficulty. The anxiety levels will decrease and then the learning will just catch up. So it is really shocking that we are in a system where we have very few available help for children who need it 
Remember, there's a mental health crisis with NHS. It's really, really hard to get uh, access to CAMS, um, which provides uh, supports for children with mental health issues. And sometimes you only get 10 sessions. That's not enough. You might need two years worth of sessions to overcome anxiety. Um, for for example. So it is a shame that we have a system that only gives you the funds you need if you evidence that you have a cognitive disorder. And it is a shame that you have professionals who claim that you have a disorder after seeing your child for only 45 minutes. So we can see here that there is a, an acceleration, an accretion of diagnosis. And I'm not sure that we are actually helping the students because there's still a massive waiting list to see a spe speech therapist, a psychologist, and a clinician when it's needed. So this is a bit of an issue, and I think we should really review the whole system. And we should also, if a child needs to have someone dictating for him or um, reading the instruction for them, we shouldn't always need a diagnosis for that. We should just say, this child is able, this child just needs someone to do X and Y. And this should just be accepted because remember, the teacher is an expert in pedagogy. A teacher is daily trying to see how to improve cognitive skills, how to improve learning for their students. So if a teacher is noticing a difficulty, the teacher should be able to find the best solution. So this was really what I wanted to talk about today. So let's hear the news one more time. Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, a political alternative, offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes EDAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check, or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen EDAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at edapt.org.uk today. EDAPT. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The BBC covers reports that Labour has dropped plans to end charitable status for private schools. The status exempts some private schools in England and Wales from taxes. The Labour leader, Sir Keir Starmer, had previously said charitable status for private schools could not be justified. The party said it will still remove other tax breaks if it wins the next general election. There are around 2,500 private schools in England and Wales and government figures show around half are registered as charities. Having charitable status means the schools cannot operate for profit and are eligible to claim some tax exemptions, including on donations and business rates. Since 2006, private schools have had to demonstrate they are creating public benefit in order to maintain their charitable status. Labour has said it would charge private schools 20% VAT and end business rates relief. It says this could raise an estimated £1.7 billion. A party spokesperson said the money would fund desperately needed teachers and mental health counselling in every secondary school. Last year, the Scottish Government scrapped business rate relief for private schools. The Conservatives have questioned whether tax changes would raise the £1.7 billion as claimed by Labour. The problem of RAC was highlighted again as parents with children at a secondary school in Durham, affected by the potentially unsafe concrete, staged a protest. Parents told schools minister, Baroness Barron, who was visiting the school, that there had to be more support for the teachers and pupils and that the school must be rebuilt. The school is using a mix of face-to-face -face and online teaching 
after Rack was found shortly before the return to school from the summer break. The multi-academy trust in charge of the school has asked the DfE if it could use centre-assessed grades for GCSE and A-level pupils, similar to the way assessment was used during the pandemic. A DfE spokesman said it was working to bring back face-to-face -face teaching quickly and that the school would be rebuilt. Procurement, design and planning stages would be started before the end of the year. Schools Week reports on MPs' comments that government should create a school absence code specifically for mental health and review the adequacy of health services struggling with soaring waiting lists. The Parliamentary Education Committee has also urged the government to make its daily attendance data collection mandatory as soon as possible. The committee found growing demand for mental health services and special educational needs support, as well as the cost of living pressures and other issues, have compounded problems with attendance. However, Schools Minister Nick Gibbs said changes would add further complications for schools in coding absence, which could damage the accuracy of data. Full details of the committee's recommendations can be found in the article in Schools Week Online. The Guardian covers news that in America, students at more than 50 high schools across the country are proposing a Green New Deal for schools. They are demanding that their districts teach climate justice, create pathways to green jobs and plan for climate disasters. The campaign is seen as a reaction to right-wing efforts to ban or suppress climate education and activism at school. The national effort would see teach-ins, walkouts and petitions. The New Deal also calls for updated buildings and infrastructure to make schools more climate resilient. Further details can be found on the Guardian website. Finally, the Nuffield Trust has said that student loans in England should be written off for certain health staff once they have completed 10 years of NHS service. It says this is needed to stop a dropout crisis among nurses, midwives and other frontline staff. Ministers have rejected the idea, saying support is already in place and that the current student finance system strikes the right balance between the interests of students and taxpayers as well as highlighting training grants, support for childcare and some expenses. Tuition fees are not charged in Scotland and in Wales, tuition fees are covered if nurses and other frontline staff work for the NHS for two years. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Jo Fox. So dear listeners, um, today we looked at how to support children who have cognitive difficulties or special educational needs via a case study. Um, I think it's really important to remember what the neuropsychologist said. Um, he said that we need to start with what works when we approach a, a child who is struggling. So whenever you have a student who is struggling in your classroom, please just sit down, make a list of what that child can do first, and then you build upon this. Um, sadly, we are not always able to get a teaching assistant to help. And as in my school, if you have five students who have a special educational needs in one classroom, you're never going to have five teaching assistants. You might have one at a stretch who needs to help every child taking turns. And this can be done if you uh, have enough differentiated material or if you just have a TA who is also very aware of when to support and when to let the child work through their own uh, skills. Now, the other thing is that we need to allow the child to have time off and uh, we can call it a mind break. And this is also good for ev anybody because when you think about it, children are sitting down at school from 8.30 to 3, which is a very long time where we can't be focused at all times. It's good for the teacher as well. So um, rather than have... Um, a minute where we all stand up and do a little dance. If that works, that's fine. But the neuropsychologist said um, that maybe it brings too much agitation and this is something that is really not something we want for uh, some neurodivergent, neurodiverse students. So he advised to have uh, two minutes of silence, not in a gloomy way, but he said, just train your children to have a two minute where they lay their head, forehead on their arms, folded arms on the table, and just embrace 
that mindfulness of not doing anything for two minutes. And he said to use this mind break, not at the same time every day, but whenever you feel preemptively that we've all had enough. And he said, please do it preemptively. We we usually as teachers wait too much before we actually try to uh, reset the classroom. So have preemptive mind breaks throughout your day. Get into the habit of doing this. He says we're much more productive after that. Um, also involve the parents if you can. And when you are in that bilingual setting where you have a child who attends a school, uh, an English school in the week and then um, other activities in at the weekend, always ask uh, the parent how the child is doing in different settings because it's very telling if a child is only struggling in one setting and not the other. Now, let's not over-diagnose our children either. Let's just also wait till they develop because they're all different. And he said, don't try to normalize children. Children are unique. We can't expect them to all reach a certain milestone at the same time. Some children are not um, particularly at ease with speaking in public. We shouldn't push it, we shouldn't force it, and we should play on their strength. And I think we forget that a lot. We're always thinking, oh, that child is struggling with um, dysphasia, uh, so they need to do drama, they need to do public speaking, we need to give them, uh, we need to ask them to bring an object and describe it to the class. No, let's not build defeat into our normal teaching practice. If a child is struggling with something, let's leave it aside for a while and focus on other things. If a child is struggling with reading, make another child read for him so that the child can complete the task because they will feel validated, they will feel like they participated in the, in the task even though they cannot read easily. So let's not build on defeat, let's work on what they can do. Let's not hesitate to ask for help from parents and teaching assistant if we're lucky to have one. And also the advice is if a child is not coping in a class environment, we should allow that child to be removed from that class environment and have some quiet alone time, either uh, in another room or with another member of staff. It is important to reduce disruption for all. And he all already insisted on the fact that we can't let one child's difficulties um, have a, a nefarious impact on a whole classroom. And I could not agree more. I think it is essential that every head teacher in this country has avoiding disruption as their motto and their late motive. We should not damage other children's education because we have one child who is being disruptive. Now, why is this child disruptive? We need to investigate. And if it's about cognitive difficulties, we need to give them all the tools we have at hand to support them. But we should not damage other children's education. So start with the strength, don't build on defeat, don't push something that is too hard, use alternatives and um, be aware and listen to your child who has cognitive difficulties, special educational needs or just a difficulty with something that can be overcome. And on the positive note, I asked a neuropsychologist if we could see um, on an MRI if a child has ADHD or ADD. And he said that it was not a good way of diagnosing or measuring because the brain is perfectible, the brain is plastic. So some children might have a thickening in their brain in the specific area where we have attention, um, where, where the attention is, uh, is produced. But this is also the magic of the brain is that these children might have found new pathways to deal with it in other ways.
And not all children who have ADHD or ADD as children will show signs of having ADD or ADHD when they're adults because they might have found a way to compensate. So whatever diagnosis you have, there is hope that you can teach your child the right way to overcome the difficulty. So I hope this is a positive note and I hope it gave you some pointers as to how to deal with it practically in your classroom. And remember, after my own case study, I did fail this time because I lost two students um, because we didn't find the way to work collaboratively with the father in that case. But my failure, I hope, is going to help others to overcome this. We need to be extremely preemptive, explicit in our instructions, clear, informative, and work collaboratively with the families. And anybody's failure is a learning curve. So I will do better next time. I hope you find it um, pragmatic, enriching, and helpful. And I wish you an absolutely delightful Sunday evening. Thank you. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.